0: Uh, What a priority this was for the fathers who who, uh, wrote this catechism. What a priority it was in the Reformed churches that this doctrine of justification uh, be explained correctly and be guarded against the errors that so often adhere to it. And so we have question 62, which asks the question, Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of our righteousness? And again, I take you back to the very first sermon, we had on this, remember that there is such a distinction made in the scripture between my righteousness, my own things that I do to keep the law of God, my own record of right and wrong, but there's also Christ's righteousness, his record of, of course, perfect obedience to the law of God. And the question is now asking us, why can't my righteousness play just a small role When I stand before God, why can't I point to at least something that I've done? And the question, or the answer is given us then, because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. So last week, you'll remember the question was, if we are justified by faith, isn't faith a good work that we do? And God looks at our faith and says, yeah, now I justify you because you're such a strong believer and you have such a good faith, a solid faith. And we, we, we discovered that, no, it's in the very nature of faith, that faith in and of itself is nothing except that it reaches forth and takes hold of the righteousness, the perfect record of Christ. Not my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfect record. Imputed or reckoned to be mine. And that's what faith does. Again, not the praise isn't to the faith, but the praise is to what faith takes hold of. That's what we considered last week. But now this week comes back this question again. Can't our good works, can't my righteousness, isn't there anything that I do? Even the best things, my my prayers, my church attendance, none of that. Can't at least a little bit of that count? as part of why God would say to me, you're righteous, or you're not guilty. You're justified before me. That's the question that we have put before us this evening. Now, when we get to the subject then, congregation, of getting right with God, or, again, we use the big word justification, right? By sin, we are not right with God. But when we are justified... That's the biblical term that means we are brought into a state of being right with God. All is well again. So, justification. And we have two ways already in our text. In Galatians 3, if you look at that text, in those first five verses, we have these two ways, this contrast given us very clearly right from the start. In verse 1, he talks about Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Right, that's a reference to the preaching of the apostle. The preaching of the apostle was to lift up Christ. You remember previous, he says that in the gospel, a righteousness is put forth, is set forth. And that's the preaching of the apostle. But then in verse two, he says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so now there you see those two ways, my friends, two ways of getting right with God. By the works of the law? Well, that would be my righteousness. My law-keeping. But there's another way. The apostle says, or by hearing with faith. In other words, when Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified, that when I heard that, I stretched forth my empty hand, and I took hold of the promise of salvation in Christ, and I was justified. I was set right with God. And it was just by faith. Oh, that was such a good news to the Gentile believers. They didn't need to be circumcised. They didn't need to keep Jewish Sabbath and to follow all those uh, rituals and ceremonies that the Jewish law prescribed. Why they could just reach forth, and remember how Spurgeon put that last week, that leprous hand. That leprous hand of faith. Empty. Nothing in itself. But it took hold of Jesus Christ. As crucified. So, but anyways, we see very clearly then those two ways, right? The works of the law or hearing with faith. And Paul continues in verse four. He says, Did you suffer so many things, if indeed it was in vain? So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So in verse 2 and verse 5, we have both of those: the works of the law and the hearing by faith. We see the same contrast in verse 3, different words, but the same idea. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Spirit and flesh. And you drop down to verse 11, and you can see that now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, and there you have it again. This contrast, right, of being justified by the law, by my own righteousness, or justified by faith in Christ and being justified by his righteousness And those are absolutely mutually exclusive, my friends. That's the teaching of the apostle, which is, of course, the truth then that underlies the catechism question and answer that's given us this evening. Now, in Reformed theology, you know this is a Reformed church, right? We're part of the United Reformed denomination. In the Reformed churches, we have used language that isn't necessarily strictly in the Bible in that that very terminology, and yet it's a very useful concept for us to understand these two ways of getting right with God. And we have used these expressions, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Two covenants, two ways of getting right with God. The covenant of works was what God gave to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And Adam was going to get right with God by his own obedience, by his own righteousness. That was a failure, of course. Adam ate the forbidden fruit and he failed. But in the covenant of grace, God comes with us with a new message. Again, the covenant of works still has to be kept. It still has to be adhered to. Those conditions still have to be met. But in the covenant of grace, God comes and says, I'll lay those conditions on Jesus Christ. And he will keep them. He will keep them in your place. That's grace, isn't it, my friends? Now this righteousness that God gives to us, he sets forth to us in the second covenant, the covenant of grace, is a righteousness not our own, but the righteousness of our mediator. Now, my friends, the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. Now, when we come to talk about what in our catechism it says, that the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. I want to speak for a moment here in my second point about Christ's obedience. What is it that Christ has done? to obey the law, and to make us Christians, to make us, to bring us into that place we are right with God. And again, the Reformed churches have used this distinction. Again, not a, a distinction that you'll find in so many words in the Bible, and yet the concept is clearly there. And it's such a helpful way to think about what Christ has done for our salvation. And so again, I ask you to think hard with me for a minute about Christ's passive and his active obedience, Christ's passive and his active obedience. And the best way to think of that, my friends, is to think of what we need as sinners. Because in the first place, we talk in our life about sin. We have not kept God's law as we should have. We have broken God's law. In fact, congregation, when the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin and we're honest with ourselves, we'll confess that we have broken every one of God's commandments. And when we sin, we bring guilt upon ourselves. And guilt requires punishment. And so now this brings, this is our need, and Christ meets that need. My friends, one of the beautiful things about the sermon this evening is how you'll see how Christ meets us at the point of our need. We need to be punished. If we're going to face that punishment ourselves, we're going to be in hell eternally. Because we sinned against the most high majesty of God. But now Christ comes. And he becomes a curse. We had that in our in our scripture reading already this evening. He becomes a curse for us. In, these, in other words, he steps in our place. And the waves of God's wrath comes down upon his head. And crushes him. He dies on the cross. And so in a sense now, our fathers have used this expression. His passive obedience. In other words, he took the punishment that we deserved. And that is something that he wasn't entirely passive in, right? Because obviously he went to the cross, but still it was something that he endured. It was something that was done to him, right? And so that's why it was called his passive obedience. The punishment that we deserved, he took. And he endured that in our place. And he was punished for us. And so our fathers have called that his passive obedience. But now they went on to speak of his active obedience because they said it wasn't just enough that Christ would obey. Oh, I'm sorry, let me finish the, 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 the table there. So the definition of the passive obedience is that Christ took our punishment. He was punished in our place. And what is the result of that? What is the result of that? Well, the result of that is that we are forgiven and that the, the relationship between God and us is restored again. Right? We could use the word reconciliation. God is no longer angry with us. Our sin and guilt is removed. Our sin is forgiven. And God is no longer angry with us because of our sin. We no longer deserve his punishment. Christ has done it all in our place. But again, our Reformed Fathers have said, but Christ does more for us than just that. And again, let me take you back to our need. Because think of a text like this. I think we've all heard this text before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life, right? Was the was the reward that God promised for a perfect obedience to his law. How will we get everlasting life? If you're taking notes tonight, you can just write in the result column under Christ's active obedience, everlasting life. Everlasting life. How will we get everlasting life? Well, the only way we can get everlasting life, congregation, is if we obey the law of God perfectly. But we've already wrecked that. That, that's already been, that option's already been taken away from us because we sinned against the laws of God. Well, then I guess we don't get everlasting life. Again, our sins can be forgiven, right? But you still don't get the reward if your sins have been forgiven. Right relations can be restored between God and us. But that does not entitle us to receive. Let me use this example. Let us suppose, uh, and and young people can especially relate to this, but let us suppose suppose that uh, as a young person, a young woman or a young man, you go to school, right? And your father says to you, he says, if you do not get in trouble in school for at least a month, again, I mean, perhaps you had some trouble with this in the past, so your father gives you a one month period. If you can just go to school and not get into trouble for one month, I will give you a $100 gift card to the grocery or to the, uh, uh, the department store of your choice or to Amazon or to a restaurant or whatever it is, a $100 gift card. You got it now? A $100 gift card that you will receive if you can just get through school for one month without getting into trouble? Well, as things go, suppose that you do get into trouble. Why, it's only one weekend and already you did something and you got in trouble. And of course, news goes home and your parents find out, your father finds out that you uh, disobeyed one of the school laws and you got in trouble. But you, being the person that you are, you go to your father and you say, Father or Mother... I did wrong. I I confess that I did this wrong thing. It was foolish of me. I deeply regret it, and I ask for your forgiveness. And the father, again being the kind and loving man that he is, says, Son, I forgive you. I forgive you. You did the wrong thing, but you were man enough to come up and apologize for it, to take take the ownership of it. You took responsibility for it, and I can appreciate that, and I forgive you. He gives you a hug. You shake hands, whatever it may be, and you go your way. You see how the relationship has been restored. But children, what have I not mentioned yet? What about the $100 gift card? Right? You're still thinking about the $100 gift card. Well, you don't get that, do you? You don't get the $100 gift card because you you didn't keep the agreement. In biblical language, you didn't keep the covenant. So yes, relations have been restored. You're, you're right with your father again. You shake hands. Your mom gives you a hug. It's okay, right? But there's no $100 gift card in your hand, and it's not coming. What did you have to do to get the $100 gift card? You had to stay out of trouble for a full month. Well, in our, in our kind of earthly example here, right, the gift card is done. It's gone. It's not happening, is it? You see, my friends in the gospel. God comes, and he says, you don't get, not the $100 gift card, but you don't get everlasting life. Yes, I'll forgive you, and right relations are restored again. But what do you have to do to get everlasting life? Well, you needed to keep the law of God perfectly, and you didn't do that. So yes, right relations are restored. You're right with me. Right, God continues. He he takes us back, but you don't get everlasting life unless you have a perfect obedience to the law of God. Now, how will you get that? Well, Christ's active obedience, my friends. Because we need a perfect record of obedience. We don't have it. How will you get that perfect record, that flawless record? Not a single sin, not the slightest flaw. That's what you have to have. That was the covenant, that was the agreement. Well, my friends, in the gospel, Christ came to this earth and he lived a. How many sins did Christ commit? Children, how many sins did Christ commit when he was on this earth? You know that he committed not a single sin, right? Now, my friends, the gospel tells us that God will take that perfect record, that spotless record of what Christ did when he was on this earth, and he will lift it off Christ, and he will set it to your record. The perfect righteousness of Christ, he will take from him, and he will impute it. That's kind of the theological word, but it just means that he will reckon it to be yours. Now, it's, it's not really yours, is it? Because you, we've got all kinds of sinful things on our record. But Christ will take that perfect, or God will take that perfect record of Christ, and he will lay that upon us. What's the result of that, then? Everlasting life. That was the agreement, Right? That was the covenant of works that God gave us. That perfect obedience will give you everlasting life with no death and with no sorrow. All those things came into this world because of of death and because of sin. I'm sorry. All those things like death and sorrow came into this world as a result of sin. So if we have a perfect record and and the very perfect record of Christ is now our record so that when God looks at us he sees not the least sin, not the least flaw, not the least transgression then we are entitled. I almost don't dare say that, do we? Do we as sinners dare to say that we are entitled to eternal life? Well, do you understand that there is a truth to there that, isn't it? That if we really have the record of Christ imputed to us, then we have a right to eternal life. My friends, I even am so bold to say that we can even go back to that old covenant of works and we can say, Lord, this covenant of works has been perfectly observed and it's every jot and tittle. Almost sounds too bold, doesn't it? And, and, and it does sound too bold. I, I agree with you on that. But it's still the truth of the gospel, my friends. That God reckons to us the perfect record of Christ. And as a result of that, we are entitled to everlasting life. So the result of Christ's passive obedience, that he takes the punishment that we deserve, is forgiveness and reconciliation The result of Christ's active obedience, that he keeps the law perfectly. This is something he actively does, right? At least when he was on earth, he actively kept the law. This was not something done to him. It's something that he did himself. Now, that perfect record is imputed or reckoned to be ours. Now, if we go back to the text, if we go back to the text and we go to verse, you go to verse 6. You can see, by the way, last week we talked, we preached from Romans 4, and we had the same text. Paul's giving the same argument here. In verse 6, Galatians 3, in verse 6, "...even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness." And again, we explained that last week, not his faith, but what his faith took hold of, was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Paul goes on, "...therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham." The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And then he goes on. He goes on in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law. Now, my friends, when you hear that, the, the works of the law, and you read about people who are of the works of the law, you should understand that that means these are people who are under the covenant of works. They are relating to God on the terms of the covenant of works. In other words, they are standing before God on the same terms as Adam did. They have to keep the law perfectly. And that's why he says they are under a curse because they sinned in the past and they're going to sin in the future. And being under the law means that you have to keep the law absolutely perfectly Paul says, let me quote a Bible verse to that effect. And he quotes, I believe this is from Deuteronomy. Cursed. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by, and here's the key word, all. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You see, if you are going to stand before God on the basis of the covenant of works, or as paul says otherwise based on the works of the law well then you have to you have to keep every jot and tittle of the law of god perfectly without the least transgression and the littlest transgression will get you cut off from his favor but paul says now that no one is justified by the law in other words no one can be justified that way is evident and then he quotes from habakkuk the prophet habakkuk the righteous man shall live by what by faith. And live here means live spiritually, live savingly. He'll be saved by faith. Verse 12, however, the law is not of faith. In other words, these two ways of getting right with God are polar opposites. They're mutually exclusive. The covenant of works is you cannot be in both. And again, you you see something of that in in the question, right, where it said, why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of our righteousness? But Paul cuts that off in verse 12 because he says the law is not of faith. If, you're going to th- if you think you're going to be justified before God by the law, if even just a little bit by the law, by something you do, by your own righteousness, then you're all in the covenant of works. You stand before God on the same ground that Adam did. But he says the law is not of faith. Well, there's another way, and that's the faith way, or the covenant of grace, that you receive the righteousness of Christ as a free gift. And he goes on to, uh, to speak of that in the verses that follow. It's very clear to us, isn't it, though, congregation, that the law of God requires perfect obedience or it brings us under a curse. In Romans chapter 5, Paul makes this statement in Romans 5 verse 19, where you can see the same truth. In Romans 5 and verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners or became guilty. And who's that one man? As through the one man's disobedience. That's clearly Adam, isn't it? Functioning in the Garden of Eden under the covenant of works or under the works of the law, as the apostle would say. Many were made sinners. But then the flip of that, even so through the obedience of the one, the whole life obedience of the one, Jesus Christ, the many will be made sinners righteous, or they will be justified. They will be made, brought into a state of being right with God. Well, there you have the truth then, my friends. I think our catechism is, is, uh, is, is uh, proven to be correct from Scripture, isn't it? That the righteousness which can pass God's just judgment must be entirely perfect, and must in every way measure up to the divine law. And because of that, even our best works in this life cannot be our righteousness It cannot be because they are not perfect. And God requires perfection. My friends, I moved to uh, five points of application. I added one this afternoon. That's what happens when you read books on Sunday. You, you read points and you think, oh, I have to bring that out too <laughs> in the evening sermon. So I quick slid that one in on the end there. I hope it won't be disagreeable to you. At any rate, my first point is theology. Because, my friends, I couldn't help but know what a beautiful thing it is to study theology. I know these sermons in the evenings have been rather heavy theologically. But my friends, isn't there a beauty here, which you can't find anywhere in this world? This is a cathedral of mammoth proportions. You know how that is sometimes when you walk into these cathedrals or these beautiful buildings and you almost want to fall on your knees. It's just so beautiful, right? This is like standing in the the mountains in Alberta and you see this landscape before you and you're you're overcome with the beauty of it. And my friends, that's what, that's what theology is. That when you take apart the word of God piece by piece and when you begin to systematize it into a system of truth, sometimes you, you're astonished at the beauty, and especially tonight, of how in each point of our need, Christ answers. We need to be punished. Christ takes the punishment. We need a perfect righteousness. Christ provides it. That's my second point Jesus, our Savior. We learn from our youngest days that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus died for me. And those are lovely truths. But the study of theology enables us to take that deeper and to understand in a, in a greater level and to appreciate even more what Christ has done for us. My friends, I ask you this evening, does the justice of God have any claim against you? In other words, is there a sin on your record tonight that the justice of God says that has to be atoned for? I ask you to be honest before your own conscience and before the all-seeing eye of God. Does the justice of God have any claim on you tonight? And again, if we're honest with ourselves and by the light of the Spirit of God shining upon our own record, we see that our record is covered with imperfections. It's Sin upon sin. And when the Spirit of God sets that home to our hearts by His own convicting power, then we see in such a powerful way that our record is rife with guilt and sin. Well, my friends, if the justice of God has something, has a claim against you, then the gospel comes tonight and says there's a Savior for you. There's a Savior for you tonight who's taken that punishment upon himself and in your place. My friends, I ask you again, do you have in your own life a record of perfect obedience? Do you do you hope one day to go to eternal life, to enter into everlasting life? As we celebrated it this week when we went to the funeral of Rena de Vries. But in your own life, do you have a hope of going to eternal life? What does your record look like? When you look at your record, you say, well, my sins are forgiven. Praise God for that, my friends. But you still sinned. And you still lost the right to eternal life, even by your sins, even when they're forgiven. Do you need a perfect record? I go back to Romans 3, that text we preached on the first time, because those are such beautiful words. In Romans 3, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God or the righteousness from God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Jesus is my Savior. That's what we learn as children. But as adults, my friends, and as as we dig deeper into the scriptures, we discover that he meets us at the point of our need. And he gives also to us. He sets it forth also this evening, that perfect righteousness, which you can have for free, simply for believing in Jesus. And then that gives you a right to eternal life. Now you are entitled to receive the free gift of eternal life. What a blessing it is, my friends. What a blessing it is to put, our, to put our whole soul into the hands of Jesus. I ask you, my friends, do you remember back at the beginning of the catechism, remember when we were going through those Lord's Days, those questions and answers, where it was convicting us of our guilt, where it was talking about our sin and misery before God. It was talking about the curse that we come under for our sin. It was talking about, remember, how we were trying to find, is there any way of salvation? Is there any way we can be extricated from this dilemma that we're in? Is there possibly any way that I can satisfy God's justice? Is it possible that there's someone else who will satisfy God's justice? You'll remember it said we need a mediator. And finally we landed on that mediator, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ who has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. But now it's been filled out so beautifully for us that this mediator meets us at the point of our every need. that's such a wonderful truth and that's why i say that theology is such a beautiful thing it enables us to go deeper into what we mean when we say jesus is my savior by the way friends such a study of theology also enables us i'm kind of merging application 1 and 2 together now such a study of theology enables us to appreciate the preaching of the word of god so much more that when the when the preacher presents these truths he presents things that we know and understand And we can relish them all the more. Theology does that. The more theology that we understand, the more places you might say there are in your mind for the preacher to speak to. You know how that is, right? When you hear a song on the radio and you never heard it before, it might be a wonderful piece of music and you can enjoy it, right? But what about when a song comes on that you know? You knew it from your childhood, right? It just speaks to you so much more, doesn't it? When you know and understand and recognize that song. In the same way, when the preacher is preaching something and he's, he's laying that out, you can take so much more enjoyment on it when we understand these truths as, as, they're, as they're given us in the Scripture. My friends, the third point of application is I want to highlight those words in the Catechism, our best works. That very last sentence, but even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. Well, that's a humbling thing to have to say, isn't it? Do you confess that also tonight, my friends? Again, another question to put to you. Do you confess that your best works are still stained with sin? And you fill in the blank, but what is it, my friends? Perhaps your your strict attendance at church, morning and evening. Perhaps it's your celebration of the Lord's Supper. What could be a better work than when we gather with the people of God and celebrate the death of Christ in the sacrament. Maybe it's, it's your evangelistic endeavors, how hard you do to, to reach out to different people, the, the good that you do, hospitality, and, and how you, you have an eye for people who are hurting or need an encouraging word, and, and you're there for them. The best works, my friends, are stained with sin. The best works. You see, my friends, then the the gospel becomes extremely simple to us, doesn't it? Because we fall back no matter how far we've come in the Christian life, no matter how much good we do in our life. We finally fall back on the fact that Jesus saves me. I thought it was so interesting. I put Bovink there. Herman Bovink was a great theologian in the Reformed churches. I think you probably recognize his name. But when he came to die, he said, My learning does not help me now. Neither does my dogmatics. Faith alone saves me. What a precious legacy that man left us. He left us four volumes of dogmatics, four volumes of Bible doctrine that are still used today in theological seminaries. But you know, when it came time for Bavink to die, even his best works, and that was a good work, my friends, all of the writing and thinking he did there, but it had to get pushed aside. Because when he stood before God, he wasn't saved by his dogmatics alone. Or even partially by his dogmatics. Then he had no other grounds to stand before God than just his simple faith in Jesus. No different than the least smallest child here. Faith in Jesus. When a child puts his or her hand in the hand of his father or in the hand of her mother and puts faith and trust in his mother, in the same way when a child puts her hand in the hand of Jesus, she is saved. And in a a sense, this almost seems kind of a contradiction to what I said before about the beauty of studying theology, isn't it? But you see, my friends, the, the, the study of theology enriches our Christian life. It does not save us. It enriches our experience and relish of the Christian life. But faith alone, my friends, Faith alone brings us to Jesus and saves us. Whether you're boffink or whether, I remember reading once in a story of this man who was mentally handicapped and he, uh, he heard this sermon and he came to talk to the preacher and he, he wasn't even able to really speak coherently, but all he said was, God great. God great. Again, boffing with all his dogmatics or this simple-minded man who couldn't even string a sentence together. But if there was faith, they're saved equally before God. Even our best works have to get pushed aside. My friends, in the fourth place, there's an inner legalist within every one of us. And that's why we have to come back to this doctrine again and again. Even as the people of God, there is within us this inner Pharisee, this inner, may I say it, an inner pope. Right, whereby we want to do something. We have this itch, this, this inclination that I want to I want to contribute at least something to my salvation. Yes, I've got a problem, but please let me at least fix a little of it. Yes, I need help, but I, I'm gonna get there. Right? What is in in some respects such a healthy attitude in life in the matter of salvation is a killer. It's that inner legalist. I put that quote from Pink on the from Arthur Pink on the on the outline there. There is a continual need to return to the great fundamental of the faith. As long as the age lasts, the gospel of God's grace must be preached. The need arises out of the natural state of the human heart, which is essentially legalistic. By legalistic, here he means this desire to work and to earn God's favor in some way. The cardinal error against which the gospel has to contend is the inveterate or the inevitable tendency of men to rely on their own performances the great antagonist to the truth is the pride of man which causes him to imagine that he can be in part at least his own savior what a humbling thing it is then to confess that even our best works are stained with sin and to put that inner legalist to death and to come again and again to the lord jesus christ as the people of god now of course an unsaved person needs this truth in a big way but my friends, even as Christians, we have to relearn this lesson again and again. That our status before God is not based on anything that we do, but only on what Christ does. You know, sometimes you'll hear people uh, when they're speaking, especially if they've received bad news about their health or they're dying, and they'll, they'll say things like, well, you know, I've lived a good life, I've, I've done my best, and I've tried to honor God with my life. And again, I understand that in, in itself, that's probably innocent enough, and yet the, the thought behind it, really, my friends, is, is quite wrong headed, isn't it? My friends, when you come to die, and let me that, that's my fifth point, actually, when we think about death, when we think about dying, it's not time then to think about your own works. When you come to that moment when you are going to leave this life and enter this into the next, when it comes time in your life, my friends to think, how am I going to stand before God? And when God says to us, why should you, and put your own name there, why should you, my friend, this evening, worshiping with us tonight, why should God let you into heaven? What right do you have to come through those doors? Then it's not time any longer to speak of my life, or I did this, or I lived that, I tried my heart. All of that gets swept aside. Then, I turn to this hymn because this hymn speaks so powerfully to it. Thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. It's on that basis, my friends, that we can die. It's on that basis that we can leave this life with a perfect confidence that when we come before the judgment seat of God, we will be justified. There's a justification that happens here. But there's a justification also that happens when we stand before the judgment seat of God. And then, my friends, we can only plead, thy works, not mine, O Christ. Then we have to say, Lord, my righteousness is a failure. My righteousness should by rights bring me to hell forever. But this day, Lord, I stand on the righteousness of Christ. I stand on the spotless righteousness of of my Savior, of the Mediator. And that's the only argument I can bring, Lord, why I should enter through those doors into everlasting life. My friends, I can assure you that there's no other ground to stand upon before God. All other ground is sinking sand. But what a pleasure it should give us this evening that if we take our firm stand on the gospel and we come under the terms of the covenant of grace, And we say with all our heart and with all our soul, young and old, gathered with us tonight, not my works, but thine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. Now you have a solid ground on which to stand. May God bless these words to our hearts. Let us pray. Lord, we commit ourselves this evening into the hands of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we have no grounds upon which to plead in ourselves. There's no reason in us, Lord. There's nothing that we've done that we can point to and say, Lord, here's something. Let us into heaven because of this. But, Lord, tonight we take hold of the righteousness of Christ as it is lifted up to us in the gospel. As Jesus Christ is portrayed before us, publicly displayed as crucified, Lord, we take hold of him by faith. And we confess, Lord, that all our righteousness is in him. And the only ground, the only argument we can bring is his perfect satisfaction righteousness and holiness on our behalf. Lord, if there is one here who thinks that he or she can make up a little of his own righteousness, Lord, I pray that you would dash that to pieces tonight and help them to get solidly grounded upon the rock of Christ Jesus. Lord, please bless us. We thank you, O Lord, so much for the great privilege of, of considering these truths, for leading us into this glorious cathedral of our justification before God in Christ. Lord, what words those are, what truths they contain. We fall down in astonishment before you, Lord, that you've worked out this gospel for we who have never deserved it and were never even asking for it. Lord, we praise your sovereign grace and mercy this evening and pray that you will bless and keep us and return us safely to our homes again. And all this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let's turn in our red hymnal to number 441. We'll sing the five verses of 441. Jesus, sinners, doth receive. Words of surest consolation. Word, all sorrow to relieve. Word of pardon, peace, salvation. Not like this can comfort give. Jesus, sinners, doth receive. And what follows in the five verses of number 441 in the red hymnal. the of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.